Hello, everyone. And I think this is the first time I'm recording in the morning, but I didn't get things done. So it's the 21st of July, and I am recording the day we're posting the episode, we being me, just the royal we, since it's only me posting it. But just a lot going on right now. I did a 15-minute comedy set last night, which is long for someone to get really that's a long time usually you go and do five minutes I did three minutes last week which was really short because I was away from home for about six hours to do three minutes on stage but I love it so that's that's what happens um I'm preparing for Camden Fringe that's a festival in Camden where I'm living in London and doing a show so if you're in London August 8th through 11th and the 15th are the dates of the show. It's called Nice Try. It's on a double bill with another comic, Stephanie Lawrence. And it's been a really interesting exercise to put a show together. I mean, it's a half hour. I'm hoping to build it into longer. I'll see what happens after this fringe, but that's my intention. And it's just one of those goals. If anything, it's my first of a few or many solo shows, or if anything, it's just a item that was on the bucket list that I've poured a lot into. I'm going to be previewing it online on Zoom on the 25th of July and the 1st of August as well. So if you don't follow me at my account, Robbie Comedy, you can do that or just email morethanworkpod at gmail.com and I can get you a link. But I'd love for people to listen and I never know who's listening to the podcast because there are more listeners than I'm aware of. Of course, I'm aware of like four or five of my friends who follow me just diligently and I I'm so excited that other people are hearing it. So this week's guest is Jamie Padilla, and I'll introduce her in a minute on the podcast too, but we went to high school together, and we definitely hung out in different crews, or I didn't really have a crew, I guess, Uh, just hung out with different people, but we were also in junior high together, and she's always really nice, just a really nice person, and really funny, like I just remember her um, just being hilarious, and so... It was cool when I met her at my 20-year reunion a couple years ago and just saw what she had been up to, and she's really this incredible woman, and she's in labor unions for agriculture, and I don't know much about that. I mean, it's definitely something I've looked into to understand more, especially just with certain political stuff going on in the U.S., but it was really cool to talk to her and get to understand what she does and just the kind of work she's she's in which is really meaningful to her and really is one of those she's one of those people who's doing a job that fulfills her because of the cause that it's for and then she also does flamenco on the side which is really cool too and she's a performer so I just I loved this chat I loved getting to know her in a different way I think that's the most rewarding thing for me about doing this podcast and I hope it's rewarding for you as a listener just to hear different people's stories and to hear what they're about. And I'd really love if if anyone's inspired by something they hear and it leads them to doing something, let me know. I'd love to hear about that. But I think that's it for this week. I've plugged my stuff. Now, of course, if I've plugged this and you're listening to this two months from now or even a month from now, it probably won't be relevant. But at least you know I was doing something. (laughs) And talked about the guest and I think that's what what I was here to do right now so I'll leave it to you to listen to the rest of the episode and if you want to drop me a line on any of the social media or email and let me know what you think thank you
Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome back this week. I I could have almost called this podcast like high school reunion at this point because I have another person <laughs> I went to high school and junior high with, but people are doing cool things. So it's just great to get to talk to them and connect with them as adults and about their careers and lives. And so this week is Jamie Padilla. She's Asesora del Campo, producer services manager. Did I say that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I still see the high yeah. school Spanish is paying off. <laughs> yeah. So Jamie, why don't you introduce yourself to the more than work audience? Yeah. Great. Great to be here today and see seeing you here. I know your audience isn't seeing you, but this is really nice to connect. I'm Jamie Padilla. I live in Los Angeles and I work for Fair Trade USA. I've been with the organization for a little over a year and a half. Prior to that, I was with United Farm Workers, UFW. United Farm Workers of America for a little over 11 years. And my kind of personal mission that I'm, I'm really looking to live out through my, my professional career is really to turn the tide, I'd say, on what I would describe very much as a, a, as a downward spiral when it comes to mostly labor practices, but others as well, environmental and in agriculture. <clears throat> it's not unique to agriculture, but I'm very, very drawn to wanting to impact that particular sector. So I spent 11 years trying to do so through collective bargaining and now through helping farmers to adopt best practices and, and, and helping workers, you know, to get the most out of there's a whole host of programs out there now with you know consumers wanting brands and, and, and retailers to be responsible in their sourcing practices. Cool. No, that's awesome. And it's work I think that impacts everybody, the work you're doing, because we all get our food and consume food that comes from farms and from the people who work on farms and whether it's like big corporate agriculture or even smaller. What did you do right after we we knew each other and how did you end up all the way to now working in unions over the last like 13 or so years? Right after college, I took a break. I think I worked in restaurants. I worked in like a, <laughs> yeah. like a YMCA or something. And then I went to College of the Canyons, uh, COC. It's a community college for two years, transferred to UCLA from there. And when I graduated from UCLA, I was a teacher for a while. Mm-hmm. I taught in special education. And then I decided to go back to school. I got my master's and came out and, and took a position with the United Farm Workers as a researcher. I started as a researcher, but wound up wearing a lot of hats while I was there. So I, I ran different campaigns. I did a lot of political work and you know got some experience on the ground organizing in, in farm worker communities. And then from there, I moved on to Fair Trade USA to help launch a, a new program uh, in dairy with Chobani, like mm-hmm. Chobani yogurt, to come up with the standards and the the activities that would help make dairies you know better places to work and more sustainable businesses. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm doing now. 
That's so cool. And that's a huge brand. I think everybody will know who they are. So when you ended up at United Farm Workers in the first place as a researcher, were you seeking out that specific type of work? Ah, yeah. Actually, I got the exact job I wanted. So I I really, really wanted to do research in the labor movement for a union. And I especially wanted to work with farm workers. So I wanted the UFW. And the stars kind of aligned. And I got lucky because the person who had my position before me also went to my program. And so when she left, she pinged me about it. And I applied Mm. and got it. Yeah. So I did. I thought that she had recommended me, and it turns out that the hiring manager for the position didn't hear about me. So, <laughs> so it was just kind of funny how it all how, how it all worked. But I was at least informed of the position and applied on account of her alerting me. So, yeah, it was a good moment of alignment there. Yeah, for sure. And what was the program you did your um, master's study in? In public policy. Oh, and I'm great. not doing anything in public policy. <laughs> yeah, no. I finished it. I think I finished it realizing, yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I did it. I think it afforded me the opportunity to like reassess and, and, you know, when you're kind of just plugging away and you're working and you're working and you're working, it's, it can be challenging, right? To like, mm-hmm. and I was in my 20s. To, to take a step back and, and assess whether or not you're on the right path. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, by taking a break from the workforce and, and going back to school, that was probably the most valuable part of that was I stopped <laughs> and, and like gave it some thought. And yeah. I probably wouldn't have done that if I just had kept kind of pl- plugging away in the daily grind. Yeah, no, for sure. But with the public policy, so I'm in... Um, right now. And I'm sorry, people are going to hear me drop this a couple times on this podcast and I'll be done with it. But I'm right now in a public leadership course at Harvard Kennedy. And it was an alternative to me doing a master's in public policy, just because mm-hmm. now we're about 20 years older than you were when you did that. And so, you know, life's different. Taking a year off of work is is different, is it, right? Is this a certificate program? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a, yeah. It's like, a, and so one thing I was taking, or I am taking it for is just to have a better understanding of policy and how policy is written and delivered and evidence. Do you feel like your perspective has changed just having an understanding of all that? It's really interesting that you asked that because I, I feel like I got a solid education on the technicalities of how the sausage mm-hmm. is made, right? Like, yeah. like we spent a lot of time doing a lot of fancy econometrics and it was very it was a very mathy program. At the end of it all, I came to you know, the earth shattering conclusion that policy is about politics. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Glad to be literate in these things. You know, if I read some analysis, I, you know, I I feel like having that educational background is helpful there. But yeah, at the end of the day, it really comes down to, to power and influence, right? Mm. Yeah, And everything that goes into that, money being a big one, but, you know, other factors as well, being organized, for example. Yeah. And then going into to organizing and labor. So what made you interested in specifically agriculture? Was there something? Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, when I, when I was in grad school, I was interested in, in international development. 
and saw myself kind of doing development work in Latin America and spent some time. I spent a lot of time in Mexico and in mm. migrant sending communities and realized that working with immigrants here in the U.S. is kind of just the flip side of the same coin. I wound up doing projects there with when you go to these communities it's mostly women, children, and, and elderly people. It's probably shifted in a lot of them now. You know, there's there's been reverse migration. Um, mm-hmm. But this was in 2007, 2008. And so I, I worked with a women's cooperative that was looking to expand into international markets with mostly handicrafts. But mm-hmm. they did some kind of like artisan treats and whatnot, made like shampoos from Nopal and all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff, basket. And so then I became interested in trade issues. And so it's kind of, it's cool that I wound up at Fair Trade. But yeah, I, I'll, I'll, you know, farm workers here, it's largely an immigrant workforce, mostly an undocumented immigrant workforce. They're sending money back, uh, a lot of them. Mm. Some stay and have families here, a lot actually. <laughs> and so I just kind of felt like it was, very much on the same continuum of where I'd been investing my time and energies before. Yeah. So what part of the work for you is when, well, just thinking, I mean, not what you're doing now, but during the time you were working with the United Farm Workers, what part of the work surprised you the most? I would say a big takeaway for me. I I, I don't know if it's the biggest surprise necessarily, but it's, it, it was, it's definitely, it, it shifted my perspective a lot. I went in, you know, I'd get assigned to kind of lead big activities like, you know, a, a march or a protest when we were campaigning against Meg Whitman in, what was that, 2010 when mm. she ran against Jerry Brown. We did a lot of activities around that. And I'd go in feeling um, this pressure to like take all this leadership on and and realize like i'm there as a, a servant to facilitate mm. like this is their this is their activity this is this is their campaign this is their fight and i'm just here to help with the logistics of it and i got schooled by by farm workers in very gentle ways i i think i went in not I mean, maybe from a place of arrogance. I don't know. I think it was kind of also just feeling that pressure of like, oh, I need to like prove mm-hmm. myself and take, you know, and be assertive and take action. And, you know, as a woman too, you feel that, yeah. right? Like you you feel this pressure to take it by the reins. And over the course of my years there, I really learned that that's, that's not how, that wasn't the way for me to be you know, as impactful as I, I could be there. It's their fight. And and that was very humbling for me. I was very much, my contributions were, were always welcome there. I wound up just learning a lot from workers who've been fighting, you know, for, I mean, these are, these are union members, right? So they mm-hmm. already have their, you know, their collective bargaining agreements with their benefits and improved wages relative to their counterparts, you know, and all of that. But they invest so much of their very limited free time 
fighting to ensure that more and more of their fellow mm-hmm. farm workers can have that. So, you know, they'll travel to Sacramento, they'll travel to Washington, D.C. They're out on the weekends knocking on doors, campaigning, and you know, their work is hard. So it's just, I, I would say the biggest takeaway for me was how, how humbling of an experience it was to work there. I, I think my growth there, I did, you know, I did have some professional development opportunities, <laughs> but, but more than anything, I, I feel like it just really humbled me as a, as a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that realization you came to is a really good one because just in having, I interviewed a guest that I really impacted me a lot was Lucia Nunez who worked for the Biden campaign and she worked with the volunteers on that campaign mm. and just her, her telling me that a lot of volunteers come in with like a savior complex. I took a diversity. It wasn't a diversity and inclusion training, but it was along those lines. I can't remember exactly what it was with them and, and learn that like, and yeah, it's like the importance of me as an individual volunteering is not of priority. Mm. It's the importance of the cause that I'm volunteering for and putting that first and at the center. And I think that lesson you learned is super valuable. And the fact that they were willing to tell you rather than just reject you or something is really says a lot too. Yeah. One moment stands out to me where I was working with coffee workers. So they weren't union mm-hmm. members because this was in a different country. I did a lot of work internationally when I was with the UFW too. So while the UFW is a union, it also, you know, the, the organization is, is on the front lines of, of improving farm workers' lives in a lot of different ways outside of, you know, collective bargaining because there's so few farm workers who have union contracts, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. we did a lot of work outside of that. And for me, that took me to probably seven different countries. One I spent a lot of time in was Nicaragua and I worked with coffee workers. Mm-hmm. And I was I was on the farm once when a coffee buyer came from a big company, I'm not going to name. And mm-hmm. uh, workers were pitching this buyer on buying their coffee, you know, at a premium rate so that they could have, you know, under this model where they would, they'd get extra earnings, they'd get bonuses from the premium that the buyer was going to pay. And so the buyer's listening. And then he says, well, you know, I can pay you all this premium. What, how do I know you're going to do something good with it? What if you just go, go drink it away? Or how do I know you're not oh going to just you know, blow it on this and blow it on that? And I was just like fuming and I thought, oh my God, like I like felt really compelled to speak up and and just shut this guy down and I'm like fuming, but I'm like, oh my God, but I don't want to mess up. They're trying to get this guy to buy. Like, I don't want to mess that up. But I'm just like, had this moment of conflict internally. And then he starts going on and on about the virtues of micro entrepreneurialism. And have you considered investing in a chicken coop? Like just weird, you know, like, (laughs) and the workers are just looking at him. Finally, one of the workers speaks up and says, Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you make your living off of coffee? And the guy's like, yeah, of course I do. He goes, do you have a chicken coop? And I was like, (laughs) Oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't open my mouth. It was a savior complex moment for me where I felt like I have to defend them, you know? And then I was like, thank God, I thank God I kept my mouth shut because that guy just shut him down way better. And it was was so good. Well, what's insane too is like, 
I none of my employers have ever asked me when they give me a bonus, for example. Exactly. And and I'm more likely to blow it on something. Stupid. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, like the I people who <laughs> right, like yes, I would buy drinks and you know, I don't know, whatever Chipotle. I don't know what I'd buy, but I mean, the thing is, like, you know, I'd probably go out to eat and get drinks or something with part of my bonus. Yes, but I would never expect my employer to to ask me that or say like yeah yeah. yeah, it's so ridiculous god and then just like a chicken coop and then what you want them to eat their own chickens or what like (laughs) that's mean that's crazy i guess when you look at the issues of workers in the states versus workers outside the states and like the different countries you went Mm -hmm. to did you find a lot of commonalities did you find like in different states in different countries there were no, it's it's the it's the same across the board in agriculture, and this is probably one of the reasons why I continue to be drawn to working in the in the fields, literally in the field. You know, everywhere you go, it 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 doesn't really matter where, the workers that are doing the hard work there come from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So if you are in if you're in Costa Rica, the workers that are harvesting the coffee there probably came from Panama or Nicaragua. Here, you know, they, they they hail from Mexico, from Central America. And we do have a guest worker program here. It's called the H-2A visa program. More workers can, can come for uh, seasonal work and then go back. And they're also mostly from Mexico and some Central Americans. I went to Brazil and the workers who were on the coffee farms I visited there came from other states, like really far away. And migration is just the, the norm in mm. ag. Um, and I lived in Mexico uh, in a state called Guanajuato, and the farm workers there came from Guerrero. The farm workers in in Baja come from Oaxaca. Like it's just yeah. that's ag. Everyone comes from somewhere else. And I know it's not totally unique to ag, but it's it's more ubiquitous in agriculture than it mm. is in, in other industries, right? And you know that vulnerability that accompanies migration tends to produce a lot of the same things, you know, a lot of the same abuses and bad practices. It, it's And it really just stems from that. It stems from people not having really meaningful choices and having to do this hard work for low pay and taking on the risks of migrating to do it. Sometimes putting up their, you know, family home or property um, as collateral <laughs> to you know, get work, you know, especially if they're trying to get work here in the U.S. And that vulnerability perpetuates some of the poor practices that already exist. And it can, you know, it, it can result in even worse, right? Because it, it just it results in people not speaking up mm-hmm. out of fear. So what it really what it really creates is an environment of fear. The vulnerability creates an environment. It's like a yeah. self-perpetuating like cycle, right? Yeah. Well, and I guess one thing, I mean, just is to the dehumanization of these workers by society, I would say. I mean, I don't think that's a stretch to say that that occurs. I mean, I think even during, well, they are having Brexit over here, but then during COVID in the States too, like there's been a shortage of workers in some cases. Mm -hmm. And then also this expectation that they should be putting themselves on the line and their health on the line to harvest the food and the, and whatever is in the, you know, they are, whatever they're harvesting, I mostly food products. Right. And so I just feel like too, then a lot of people will say things like, Oh, the illegals and the whatever, and just assume like all the workers, like this visa program you said, but I just think there's this dehumanization I've heard 
time and time again, especially mm-hmm. like politically. And do you, what's your experience in hearing that? Like maybe when people hear where you work or what you do and you might not put yourself in situations where you're around people who would say stuff like that, but what has your experience been? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think overall it's a huge impediment to, to progress, you know, politically for, <laughs> for these groups. So, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest reasons why that in the U S for example, um, sorry, I know you, you're asking about my personal experience and no, but that's fine. Uh, there's a lot, but by just kind of taking it up a, a notch at a, a higher level here, I, you know, I feel like it's, it's probably, in the States, one of the biggest factors to why farm workers can't count on the same protections as that most everyone else can, domestic workers too. And and farm workers Mm -hmm. and domestic workers are explicitly exempt from things like the Fair Labor Standards Act. And, you know, there's a legacy of of slavery and, and racism and ag that goes way back to the beginning of our country. And there's remnants of that that perpetuate today, including, you know, the exemptions from all these really basic labor protections. So farm workers can't count on overtime pay, paid time off. In some states, they don't have workers comp. They don't have the right to organize and collectively bargain. Like they're explicitly exempt from these laws and protections. So, and I, I think that the, the political will to change that is, is impacted by the, the reality that it's largely an undocumented workforce. Right. Personally, I've been, you know, on, on campaigns where we've been in you know, very public spaces where I have seen probably the, some of the just worst kind of racist reactions and, and derogatory treatment I, I think I've ever seen. Like that Made Whitman campaign I mentioned earlier. <laughs> Farm workers often bring their kids, you know, when we go and mm-hmm. we go and take over Sacramento for a day or whatever, you know, they travel with their kids. They, you know, they don't, they don't have nannies. <laughs> right. Um, they bring their kids. And I remember being on this, this, this campaign where we were demonstrating outside of the facilities where Meg Whitman and Jerry Brown were debating. And uh, we had signs and we're kind of, you know, you know, whatever we were saying, whatever. And this woman who is probably in her like 40s or 50s turns to a child, a little girl and said, well, you need to tell your parents to go back to where they came from. Mm. And I was like, and she's like yelling at this little girl saying racist things and to a child. Right. (laughs) Yeah, who has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, I'll see like different treatment. It's easy to pick on those who are latently racist, but where it really would piss me off the most is where you're not expecting it, right? Like you're on a campaign with allies, you think, mm. <laughs> and you realize like, oh, they're putting the fun, you know, the farm workers in the crappy hotel and, mm. you know other workers and okay interesting (laughs) yeah yeah where it's more it's not as it's more like that's when you get the implicit kind of actions that Mm -hmm. they're not as overt but they're still clearly differentiating between people by what they do Mm -hmm. yeah when you left united farm workers and made the transition over to the fair trade sorry it was fair trade usa Uh uh-huh yeah did your your focus did it change basically more from like working directly with the workers to more like on the more of a policy level like organizationally or how's the shift been 
Yeah, a, a bit. Yeah. I, I think I spend a lot of my time on, on program development. The sheer volume of internal meetings I participated in was <laughs> like a huge shift for me. So I worked a lot of hours when I worked at the UFW, but I was out in the field a lot or out in communities or out at events, right? And like that all counted as work for me. So I wasn't in front of a computer, but maybe just a few days a week, right? If even. But now I'm, I'm, you know, I am on Zoom all day, every day, which of course is exacerbated by the pandemic, but it would have been the case otherwise because I do work remotely and, and was hired to work remotely. So I do uh, hands-on work with the farms that I that I work with. And so I'll visit, I'll, I'll do trainings with workers and a lot of kind of facilitation of getting people integrated into the fair trade program, like getting, you know, coming into compliance with the standards and mm-hmm. being able to set up the whole infrastructure that makes it impactful. But it's it's a much smaller percentage of my use of time than, you know, what what I had anticipated. But I'm learning a lot about just like the inner workings of supply chains. And Mm -hmm. that's been really, really interesting for me. And probably just from a volume perspective too, right? The amount of goods that move, that go from farm to factory to, Mm -hmm. you know, table. And how they, and how that happens, like in order for fair trade to work, you know, the, the buyer or the brand or the supermarket pays a premium. So tracing that, (laughs) That process of, you know, from farm to, to, to shelf is, is really, it gets really complex. It's really interesting. Yeah. So can you explain the concept of fair trade to people mm-hmm. who don't know what it is? Yeah. So when, uh, it, it, it's a market driven approach to improving people's lives. Really. It started, it started as a movement in Latin America, in the developing world to facilitate, it was an anti-poverty movement with the idea being that through farmer organizing small farmers, you know, there's opportunity to leverage fairer prices and more transparency in supply chains. And that grew, it really grew in coffee and then kind of took off in cocoa sugar or bananas, but mostly like tropical commodities, right? And since then it's grown to, you can get fair trade roses at Whole Foods Mm -hmm. or you can get a lot of fair trade produce at Costco. It, It kind of evolved to fit into this demand for socially responsible products, right? So Big brands that are looking to not just big brands, there's a lot of niche brands too, but those who are, who are trying to ensure supply chain transparency, responsibility, investment. It's kind of a saturated space. There's a lot of different like certifications and approaches. Mm-hmm. And in coffee now, there's like buyers who are like, well, we do direct trade or whatever. This is a fair trade now is a, it's a certification that's evolved to become certification where there are standards. So okay. if you become fair trade certified, you're audited against these standards. And then you get a premium for what you sell. And that premium is used to invest in, uh, in in projects largely. So they tend to be, you know, if you're in in the developing world, workers will build a clinic or oh. a school a ho- or housing. Here in the US, we now have fair trade here, domestic fair trade. And we have building codes and <laughs> so we can't really just go and build a school <laughs> so easily. <laughs> but workers will use their fair trade premium to 
offset the cost of, of healthcare, even, you know, in, in, in medical like a medical plan, or they'll do clinic days where they'll bring a bunch of providers to come and and do checkups with workers, or they'll start a scholarship fund for workers' kids, lots of different things. They're at full discretion in, in coming up with these investment plans and project plans. And as, as a program, we advise on kind of what that decision-making process should look like and how Mm -hmm. to prepare people to be able to participate in it in a meaningful way. So they got to go through training and know how to interview their coworkers, for example, to understand what their needs and priorities are so that when they do develop a a project, it's actually reflective of the needs and priorities of the broader workforce in in their workplace. Or if it's small farmers, you know, in their community. Right. This year, I mean, your project was had a lot to do with bringing this to the specific company that Chobani or bringing it to Dairy. So, okay. so Chobani was the one to to step up and say, "We really want this. Can you figure this out?" But it's it's open to the whole industry, and we hope that you know now you can get fair trade Chobani yogurt on the market now, and I hope that pretty soon you'll get fair trade yogurt. I mean, ice cream and, and cheese and maybe even raw milk. But yeah, it, it started off as a pilot because we took the models we have it and the standards as they exist and just apply them as, as they are basically with the most minor of tweaks to then kind of, but it's, it's very much the culture of our organization to learn by doing like we, we right. love innovation. It's a Bay area based organization. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So we just kind of like to get out there mix it up and, and then from there figure out, you know, how we can make it better. So that's what we've spent this last year doing is just, okay, here we, we've, well, we've got, this standard let's try it out it's not going to be perfect everyone we just know that ahead of time there's going to be some funkiness and it's really interesting because you know the the standard requires the establishment of these fair trade committees made up of workers they have to be elected and and there's requirements around how it be representative of of the entire workforce demographically and then in terms of different roles and positions so like if you're a temporary worker a permanent worker in dairy are you working in the milking parlor are you working on the cropping side of of the operation whatever like it needs to be representative but in dairy in the u.s there's an immigrant workforce doing a lot of the, the milking side, the dairying side. And then there's a lot of English speaking, probably American uh, workers kind of operating equipment and doing maintenance and, mm-hmm. and, and d- they're distinct roles. And but these folks will all participate together in this committee where they will be investing together, like hundreds of 1000s of dollars in, in projects to benefit mm-hmm you know, their entire workforce and community. So it's an interesting opportunity to just bridge those gaps communication wise, culturally. And, you know, I'm not negating that they might have some different needs and priorities, but they're going to, yeah. they're going to be working through that. And it, it, it it'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. So as a consumer, like I know, for example, the label of organic got kind of exploited over time. Because there is it true there was no like if you know this if you don't it's fine no governing body over what's organic necessarily I read that well, somewhere there's different ones is part of the problem right there's like yeah. USDA organic there's CC whatever it is CCOS 
there's a bunch of different ones. And I would say the social responsibility space is is similar in that there are different sets of standards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the standards tend to be more aligned. If you take like fair trade and the EFI mm-hmm. or uh, Rainforest Alliance and you like line them up, the basic requirements that, that a farm or an employer or a producer would have to meet, there aren't like glaring differences there. The differences tend to be kind of more in the model and how we define and drive impact. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So it's more standardized. So if someone sees the Fair Trade USA label, then they should know, they can know that in buying that product, they are contributing to this like collective good for farms. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really transparent. Like you can go on the website and see what the standards are. You can hear from producers directly on what their experience is with it. I would say with in the social responsibility space, there's some really solid third-party certification schemes out Mm -hmm. there where it tends to get more greenwashy is when there's not a third-party verified certification. Got it. So, you know, like, like in coffee, for example, especially kind of more independent roasters and coffee shops um, like to boast about how they engage in direct trade. And that's great. I'm not like, I I, I don't want to, you know, poo poo on that, but it it can mean anything to anyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, there's, there's no, like, it just means you're buying directly from a farm and, you know, that could mean you show up and you and you pick the best quality coffee from that particular farmer and, and take a selfie and leave. Right. Like, right. <laughs> you might not ever stop to to ask about the working conditions or, hey, you have a seasonal workforce. Do they live in employer provided housing? What does that look like? Can I look at it? Coffee buyers tend to obsess over quality and they're probably like looking at the, you know, at the cafetales, looking at what's on the tree and what, all those things that impact quality. They might not think of the things that I would think of if I were to go out to a farm. I would want to see farm worker housing. I'd want to, you know, s- know how workers are getting paid. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how does that process work and how are they hired? How are mm-hmm. they dispatched into the in, into the cafetales? Those kinds of things. What is turnover like? <laughs> Yeah. What happens if they get sick? You know, things like, do they have access to medical care? Do they have access to food during the day, breaks, stuff Mm -hmm. like that, right? Like, there's all kinds of ways they could be exploited, like you said before, and have no power to say anything other than, so just keep working, right? Yeah. And there's also like, you know, a lot more nuance that tends to get missed where, you know, like, when we think of child labor, we think of an employer exploiting a kid. But a lot of times what you see is kids are, you know, like in in Central America, the school year, the academic calendar is built around the the coffee harvest. And so like kids are out of school when everyone's harvesting coffee. And sometimes they don't have anywhere else to go. And their family members are all out there. And that's where they want to be. And I'm not saying it's dangerous. Like there's snakes and spiders. I'm not saying that that's where they should be, but as Americans, we tend to think like, oh my God, these, you know, these 
these employers are exploiting these kids and the kids are the ones that are like, no, we want to be out here. So you just have to understand the nuance before you go yeah. in and try to change the practice, right? <laughs> like yeah. there's, like, you know, there's a lot more, there's a lot more impacting that than just it's like blatant discrimination or blatant exploitation, right? Yeah, because it's, I mean, it is culture. And I think in America, generally speaking, and I'm even speaking as someone who I am lacking, like, the culture of my father's side. He's from Lebanon, and I don't have any of that. And I became mm-hmm. more and more aware of that as I've gotten older. But I think in America, we like to just take away culture. And I'm mm-hmm. not even talking about appropriation of culture. I'm just talking about taking away, like, people who speak a foreign language don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I think language, to me, is one of the most, like, horrible things that we've done to people in America is take away language from them and say only English and made it so that if they're speaking something else, it's a problem. But I think, yeah, when you go to another country, especially like you have to understand their culture because they don't, not everyone's trying to be America. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Not everyone's after that. Or even the fact that they call it America when really America is this continent (laughs) versus the U S but, but yeah, not understanding the culture and what maybe, yeah, what those families need. Maybe that's the time they're spending together. You're right. I mean, it's important to look at all that. Yeah. I mean, it can run the gamut, right? Like sometimes it is really exploitative blatantly, but sometimes there's other things going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. And it just, the nuance gets missed. And Yeah. So consumers can definitely though, if they see that fair trade label, they should feel pretty good. Like with Chobani, for example, that they're contributing to something and, Yeah. So there's standards underlying it. But in addition to that, I would say one of the most impactful things about fair trade is the premium that goes back to the producer. Mm -hmm. And if it's, if the producer, they're not always employers per se, right? Sometimes the producer is a small farmer, but in the case where it's an employer and there's workers, that money goes to the workers and they manage it democratically through their committees. So that's something unique that I, and, and while those projects in and of themselves are, are impactful and valuable, what I, I really like about it what I where I find the magic of fair trade is is it gets people participating in a way that they never have before and exercising agency in a way that they probably hadn't before and then you know they really start to discover their own voice through that and it leads to changes in the workplace mm-hmm. that go just way beyond what the standard requires so yeah. so you know there's fair trade on paper and then there's you know, fair, the, the fair trade you see when you actually go out to a farm or there are actually factories that are fair trade certified now too. So you can get fair trade like jeans and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great that the companies are seeking this out too. Chobani being a leader in that, for example, but seeking this out and it is at cost to them in some ways, right? Because they're implementing things. Yeah. Yeah. So some, you know, some brands will pass along that additional cost to the consumer. And so like sometimes you'll see certified products, not just fair trade, but any certified product will cost a little bit more. Some don't. Some see it as just as plain old like risk management and good business. Mm -hmm. And they just consider it a cost of doing good business um, and good supply chain management. And they don't like in, in, in the case of this yogurt, Chwani didn't raise the price Mm. of that yogurt in the marketplace so yeah that's cool so then as far as outside of work one thing i know you're interested in flamenco right yeah yeah that's that's a little bit of 
work for me too. <laughs> yeah, on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you got involved and what you do with it now? And yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. I I, I dance here locally mostly in in restaurants. So like. When you go see a flamenco show, you might go to a theater and see a show, but often you're going to a tablao show where you're sitting down and having tapas or a meal or sangria or whatever and watching a show. It's more informal. Sometimes it's in a bar, sometimes it's in a dining room. And I, I dance in some of those shows here locally uh, and... It's really fun. You know, I work, I work hard during the week, so I get to go and blow off steam. I get paid to do it, but it's more nice. for fun and, you know, the community of it. When you flamenco, when you perform, you do it in what we call the cuadro, which is mm. a dancer, musician, and percussion. Sometimes an actual instrument for percussion, but a lot of times it's just it's your hand. And, and all of that has to work together. So there's a lot of improvisation and it's, it's, it's kind of like jazz, you know, where you're playing off one mm-hmm. another. And there's a lot of just exchange happening on stage where, you know, it's largely led by by the dancer. So if the dancer starts to speed up, the musicians speed up. But then there are moments where as a dancer, you, you're following what the singer is doing. If a singer like holds a note for a really long time, you hold it with them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of improvisation, a lot of just in you know constant engagement on on stage but yeah no I'm not from Andalusia I'm from LA <laughs> so I had to learn taking workshops and and traveling to study with different people and you know it's, um, and mostly I've learned from the different artists that I've had the opportunity to be on stage with so when did you start doing that I started uh, taking classes when I was in college and then at UCLA, one of my, my, my teachers started a, a group and we mostly were doing like theater shows. She was choreographing and staging. It was very theatrical flamenco, mm-hmm. <laughs> but she wound up getting a regular gig for us. And what I learned was, I mean, really where we became, you know, we really started to learn real flamenco was when we were in these little gigs. It's not in these theaters where Mm -hmm. everything is like highly choreographed and, you know, tacked and everything like that. So once we got in these smaller, on these smaller stages with, with musicians that sometimes you'll show up for a gig and you, you know, you don't know the people that you're working with. I mean, at this point we kind of all know each other, but you know, have you been able to perform since just since things started opening up or not yet? I just started again. So I had my first gig in May and then I just had my second one last, last Saturday. Oh, great. Yeah. Awesome. So if people want to find you. Where can they do that? Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I don't like, have a website for it or anything like that. But I dance at Cafe Sevilla in Orange County and in Long Beach and have danced off and on at a place called El Cid and a place called Alegria. Alegria is also in Long mm. Beach. El Cid is here in Los Angeles. Um, well, they don't have a flamingo show there right now, but maybe <laughs> we're hoping. Yeah. So yeah, yeah kind of all over. But the yeah, the flamingo community in, in Los Angeles is, is, is strong. Um, well, we have a lot of good good artists here. Cool. Yeah, and I interrupted you, but like, how was it being back and doing it? Oh, it was weird and fun. Like, it was. It felt really good, but it it felt surreal. I hadn't mm-hmm. been around people outside of kind of my pod that <laughs> I have had here. Mostly, we we hang out at my house, and it's Orange County, and that's di- different than LA. Like, <laughs> I mean. 
just the place was pretty packed and even walking from my car to the the venue you know like nobody had masks on or anything and that was strange for me just kind of like shocking to the system I was Mm -hmm. like whoa 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 this is intense (laughs) yeah yeah it is like even just going out like we're in London. I mean, a lot of people are still wearing masks. Some are on the, on the tube. It's 50, 50 in stores. Everyone is. So it is weird when like the other week I was, went to Brighton and it was like, everybody was just out without one. Cause everyone's outside, mm-hmm. but it was weird to see so many faces. It's cool that you do that. And, and even have found been able to perform in front of people and get paid for it and everything. So that's kind of a, a dream for any artist, right. To be able to do that with their art. Is there anything you want to cover that we didn't yeah you're such a good interviewer this was really a fun conversation you make it flow so nicely i i guess you know kind of just thinking through what i understand to be your intent and message with the podcast i would add i'm a single mom i'm 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 doing this all as a single mom and so if there are any other single moms who are are listening first of all uh, hats off (laughs) (laughs) it's really challenging and in, in my experience, I find that the biggest challenge is to strike a balance between just knowing when to go in full throttle hustle mode and, and to tap into your toughness and then knowing when to give yourself grace. You've mm-hmm. got to go in and out of that. Like you have to be tough. You don't have a choice. You know, if you're going to thrive and progress and advance and, and provide, <laughs> You've mm-hmm. got to be tough as nails. But then, you know, if you're just in that mode constantly, you'll wear yourself down. I've been probably overly hard on myself during this pandemic. And I've learned that, you know what, like, it's really, you do yourself a lot of good by extending yourself some some grace. Yeah, no, that's great. And usually I ask, like, if someone has advice, but basically that was it. So that's awesome. And yeah, we do have moms, single moms listening. I did a Mother's Day episode with my sister who and another friend who are single moms and then a friend who's married. And it was really cool. But I think that's a job that a lot of women have in addition to any other job, right? So yeah, right. it's good advice. All right, so I have a series of questions called the Fun Five. So close out with that. What's the oldest like shirt or t-shirt that you have and still wear that you've held um, on to? Yeah, uh, it's like cut up now. Uh, I, I got it. I, I got it at a dance gig, a show that I went to, and it's got like a, a dancer's leg upside down on it. It's cute. <laughs> and like I, yeah, I don't want to get rid of it. So I like I cut it so it's kind of cutesy off the shoulder. I wear it to dance class, or I wear it as a pajama. <laughs> nice. That's cool. All right, so. A lot of the time, and you mentioned being on Zoom, and yeah, it's just like the fatigue with all that is real. And every day it seemed like Groundhog's Day a lot of the time, like that <laughs> film, right? If it was really Groundhog's Day, what song would you set your alarm to play every morning? Well, I, I'm going to say something. I hate nothing more than waking up to an alarm. <laughs> and no. I haven't, I'm an early bird, and I haven't woken up to an alarm in a long time. I'm just, I like, ping, I'm up at like, the crack of dawn. If I had to, because I hate alarms so badly, I'd probably <laughs> want to wake up to, I'd want to like ease myself into the morning with something gentle. Like 
I don't know, Tibetan chimes or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate an alarm. Yeah. You know what? I actually do too. My schedule has been way different now that this happened and, you know, living over here, but I rarely will set an alarm. I mean, unless I absolutely have to, because it's annoying and there's never a good one, right? It's always like (laughs) some noise that just triggers you later. Like, you know, if you set your phone alarm and then you hear someone has that as a ringtone, like later in the day. All right. Coffee or tea or neither? Both. Both. (laughs) Yeah. I do coffee in the mornings. I have a little French press. It's supposed to make I guess like four cups of coffee and I drink the whole thing every day (laughs) starting at like I do I'm a coffee reheater (laughs) yeah so like I'll start drinking my coffee like 7 a.m and then it's like 10 11 I'm popping in the microwave and then (laughs) I like to do teas in the evening can you think of a time you laughed so hard you cried or couldn't stop or something that makes you do that I have, oh my gosh. So I have a girlfriend that I perform flamenco with and we cannot be on stage together. Flamenco can be like, you have to tap in and sometimes it's lighthearted. Sometimes it's not. And one time we were doing, it was very theatrical and we had to like come out under a spotlight on, Mm -hmm. in this black box theater. And so we can't see anybody but each other. And we get in the middle of the, of this, the stage and we're hitting the floor with these sticks. It's like really intense and dramatic. We started cracking up. Everyone was so <laughs> mad at us. But we could not control it. And then it just became a thing where whenever we were on stage together, we'd, I'd be like, Oh my God, don't look at me. Oh my God, don't look at me. Like, it just, I don't know. Like that, like when you know, you're not supposed to laugh, it just mm-hmm. makes it that much harder not to. And yeah, I, I haven't outgrown that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that would have been funny to see. If I was an audience, I probably would have laughed. But yeah, I can see how you well, We got too. hired to do an opera together like, <laughs> as dancers. You know, an opera, the opera yeah. was like, you are paying $400 a ticket. And I was like, oh my God, we cannot mess this up. <laughs> like, like, just don't look at me. Don't look just at like me. wear blinders. They're like, why are those two wearing <laughs> blue blockers? That's That's great. I like that. And who inspires you right now? Oh my gosh. I just discovered a new person. I really want to read about his name's Tony. I'm going to mess this up. I'm really excited to learn more about this guy. He just sounds so inspiring. He was a labor leader, Tony Mazzocchi, who was a a labor leader that was really passionate about democratic unionism. So very worker driven Mm. worker organizations, which, you know, people might, I I don't know (laughs) if your audience how familiar folks are with unions, but it really varies the degree to which they're led by actual members and workers. Mm, yeah. Sometimes people see unions as a service that they're buying with their dues. He was very passionate about worker-driven organizations, and I really want to learn. I want to learn more about him. So he seems really inspiring. Nice. So I guess. Just the last thing is what if people want to look you up? I know you're not huge on social media, but if they want to look you up or look up something important about you or know more, where, where do you oh want gosh. them to go? Yeah. You know what? I, I, I suck at this. I, I still have to make a LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. I think I probably have both of them on private, but you know, you can try to add me. <laughs> uh, send me a message maybe. And yeah, I guess I don't really have a big online presence. It's, it hasn't been my thing, but it, I probably mm-hmm. should at some point get around to that. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. And then they can look up 
Fair Trade USA also, if they're oh, interested yeah. in knowing more about what you're doing. Cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Jamie, this was great. I really loved learning all this. And thanks for just being so generous with sharing your experiences and also educating about fair trade and labor unions. And I think that's it was really educational for me. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Fun conversation. Glad we glad we made it happen, Rabia. Me too. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RabiaSaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself.